Alright, so hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of The Sordid Skeptics. This is episode 2 and we're going to be talking a little bit about anxiety. I'm Shredder Steve. This is Tim A. And let's get right into it. Alright, so anxiety is an all-encompassing emotion that is linked to many different psychological aspects of our lives, such as fear, worrying about the future, along with symptoms of being irritated and nervous. Anxiety can be used to describe phobias, panic attacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. But it's normal to feel anxiety when facing many of the common life challenges we face, like a job interview, an exam, or first date. The problem lies in the degree to which we experience anxiety, whether it's constant and overwhelming, and when it gets in the way of our relationships and daily activities. Anxiety leads us to avoid or leave situations where we find that it occurs, and it also encourages us doing things perfectly, along with trying to control events to prevent danger or from being overwhelmed. Thoughts associated with anxiety include an exaggeration of danger, an underestimation of our ability to cope, and help that's available, and thoughts of worry and catastrophe. Some of the physical reactions associated with anxiety include sweaty palms, muscle tension, racing heart, flushed cheeks, and of course, lightheadedness. Anxious thoughts are generally future-oriented and often predict catastrophe. They often begin with asking, what if, and end with a disastrous outcome. Someone with a fear of public speaking may think, what if I mix up my words or forget my notes? What if people think I'm a fool or I don't know what I'm talking about? This could be followed up with an image of the danger itself. With relationships, one may get concerned about being judged, rejected, or embarrassed. Thoughts such as, what if I get hurt, or what if the other person senses my weakness and takes advantage of me? Generally, the three responses to anxiety are fight, flight, or freeze, which are responses that can be adaptive when we face danger. So, for example, imagine you're out, out in the town walking at night, and a dark figure approaches you. How do you respond? Alright, so let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of anxiety. First up, we have existential anxiety. So, from the meaning of anxiety by Rollo May, anxiety can arise from the threat of meaninglessness in one's existence. Pascal noted that the perpetual restlessness in which men pass their lives, the unceasing endeavors to divert themselves, to escape boredom, to avoid being alone, until agitation becomes an end in itself. The great bulk of diversions he felt were actually endeavors of people to avoid these thoughts of themselves. Or should, uh, or should they pause for self-contemplation, they would be miserable and anxious. But also, it's, it's important to note that when the individual realizes, confronts, and takes a stand against the threat of meaninglessness, the result is a strengthening of the individual's experience of selfhood. And I just wanted to include the obligatory Carl Jung quote. Of course. <laughs> where he says, As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle light in the darkness of mere being. So, confronting meaninglessness, I think this is really um, something a lot of people are dealing with today. I know that's something that I was going through um, during the winter. Mm. And for me, basically starting this podcast i had the idea of doing it alone but then when you suggested doing one as well it really kind of 
made things kind of click together in a sense. And, you know, I think we both, we've both read a lot of philosophy and psychology and we know that there's, you know, a culture war going on in our society as well. And, you know, it feels like it's time to speak up about certain things and just, and also just share the ideas that I think would really benefit people. Definitely. Cause I mean, when I, I don't think a lot of people may have heard of some of these philosophical ideas. And I think nowadays we're so spoiled for choice that having any direction to swim kind of creates a lot of existential anxiety because there's so much opportunity cost. Cause every time you make a decision, you're deciding against like dozens of other things. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the, uh, you know, early, early days, you would uh, basically follow whatever the family business was. Or, you know, if your your father was a carpenter, you'd be a carpenter, right? So you take out a lot of that existential anxiety because you didn't really have a lot of choice as to how your life was going to play out. But uh, nowadays, you can really do whatever you want, and that can be terrifying. So I think that's where a lot of this existential anxiety is coming from in uh in this day and age and i think for men especially it's it's becoming very difficult for them to figure out exactly where their place is in the world and that's really who i'm hoping to reach with a lot of these uh these podcasts is men who are looking for i guess meaning in their lives and i know that jordan peterson has talked a great deal about this and uh just about to cross over a million subscribers on youtube so he's uh he's doing quite well for himself and uh, i think his message is very important so if uh, if we can take any of that and distill it down into some sort of useful, actionable tips for people, then uh, I'm certainly willing to take the risk to do that, because we either pay a price for what we say or for what we don't say, right? Yes, and I think there... I know I've noticed within myself a sense of nihilism and resentment generally with my own life situation, but it's also kind of pushed me in a way to seek out these things that, that give me meaning and sort of reduce the anxiety in and of itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just want to mention one kind of, um, example of anxiety is also, I think in ruminating thoughts and that we have these repetitive thoughts such as for me, like, what am I going to do for the rest of the day? What am I going to spend my time doing if I don't have, you know, I guess something set up or I'm not going to see friends or whatever else. And um, also when you're depressed, uh, things seem a lot less interesting at the same time as well, right? So Mm -hmm. you kind of are inhibited. And even though you have so many choices around you, it's hard to make, you know, in a way to decide what to do and um often what we would decide to do is just distract ourselves yes yes know? and that's certainly certainly something that's very very easy to do in this day and age we have no shortage of distractions or those who are willing to sell them to us so i think uh trying to do something for other people is probably going to be the best way to uh to generate some meaning here for sure um and one other thing another thing i was very anxious of was preparing to go into um, the supervision portion of my program because I am training to become a psychotherapist. And I became anxious because I realized that there are some certain things that I need to work on and practice in my and practice with um, my group and in other aspects of school just to make sure that I'm prepared enough to deal with clients. So um, that 
But there's an upside in that, that anxiety is that it propelled me to take some time to consider on things that I need to work on within myself and, and challenge myself in the end. And um, I did reach out to somebody um, in my program for some advice, and that was pretty be- very beneficial as well. So Absolutely. And I think it's important to realize that uh, anxiety is just part of human nature. This is a very important system that we have in order to keep us alive. But uh, the systems that we have were designed to save us from perhaps an, an attack from a predator. But this same wiring still exists. I found that uh, whenever you look at some of the early adaptions that we had set up, those systems don't really get removed. They just get adapted or grown on top of, right? So those yeah. the same, the same fight-or-flight response that kept us alive is now something that can actually be activated for months at a time. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're feeling these stresses and uh, you have these glucocorticoid secretions that are causing this fight-or-flight response to be activated, you know, it, it works fine. It works perfectly well if you're only, you know, in this state for maybe a few minutes at a time, and then once the threat is obviously gone or at least abated temporarily, the body will return back to homeostasis. But now it's like, okay, well, we have to worry about finances, we have to worry about family, and we're fully aware that we're all going to die. We do have to worry about securing resources like our ancestors, but luckily we don't have to worry about the saber-toothed tiger that's going <laughs> to yes. chase us around in the jungle, right? Exactly. Fortunately, those sons of bitches went extinct so long ago that <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to worry about them anymore. So, yeah, uh, so sure. anxiety can manifest in procrastination where it may seem like you're being productive without actually achieving anything practical, like making a detailed to-do list without actually completing any of the tasks. So again, that illusion of productivity, right? Also, self-doubt and second-guessing yourself can lead to making no decisions because when you lack trust in yourself, it can lead to confirmation bias where everything that doesn't go well or turns out badly will count as proof that your decision-making ability is flawed. And yeah, that can be, uh, <laughs> that can be a hell of a mistress to deal with, man, that, uh, that self-doubt because it's uh, as you get older, you accumulate a body of knowledge of all of the mistakes you've made in your life. So, I mean, you know, 10 to 15 years worth of mistakes you can remember is one thing, but, you know, once you're in your 30s, you got decades of experience making mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and you feel like you should know, like, a lot of these things already, and you it kind of makes you guilt yourself for, I guess, repeating some of the mistakes mm-hmm. that you feel you've already should have integrated. Definitely, and these uh, it has an advantage, right? And we'll definitely get into the advantages of anxiety a little bit later on, so stay tuned for that. Now, uh, if you guys are familiar with Soren Kierkegaard, he believed that anxiety is a state of the human being where he confronts freedom. But also anxiety turns out or turns our attention to what Kierkegaard calls our greatest task in life, which is to become who we are. We become someone when we act, not when we just make to-do lists, right? <laughs> that is to say, we form our identities by having and acting on our principles, commitments, hopes, and dreams. Inaction is unfreedom. It keeps us from standing in in right or good relations to ourselves, our friends, and family, and most importantly for Kierkegaard, to God. As Kierkegaard recognizes, the most common form of despair is not being who you are. Also, he believed confidence is not the removal of doubt and anxiety, but rather the attitude that we we can in fact move ahead despite this doubt and anxiety. Confronting anxiety also entails faith in our inner certitude. Yeah, I think... It really speaks a lot because, you know, that feeling that you get when you've really 
yeah, when you really face something and overcome that challenge, you just... You're not the same person. Yeah, yeah, you've built yourself something into something more, mm-hmm. I suppose, and it's probably in alignment with your true self as well, I think. But like we were saying before, with all these available distractions that we have, we can often trick ourselves into thinking that we're being productive, and when that anxiety goes or doesn't go away, we're often left wondering why, and then maybe turning back to distraction or perhaps turning to drugs and alcohol to try to alleviate mm. those feelings, right? Because it's it's something that, uh, or anxiety is something that you can't really see or touch or anything like that, but you can feel it and you know that it's real. Yeah, and it's like a constant gnawing, yeah. I think, in a way, too. Yeah, that constant voice in the back of your head. And it's not always clear exactly what's causing it, too. Like, yeah. it does take some reflection. I it's very so. amorphous, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Like, all you really know is that something's not going right, and you got to try to figure out what that is. So, do you want to talk a little bit about Freud's perspective on uh, what he thought about anxiety? Of course. So, with reality anxiety... Um, That includes a painful emotional experience resulting from a perception of danger in the external worlds. So the perception of danger and the arousal of anxiety may be innate in the sense that one inherits a tendency to become afraid in the presence of certain objects or environmental conditions, or can be acquired during a person's lifetime. So for example, a fear of darkness could be inborn because... Past generations of men were constantly in danger during the night before they could create light, or could be learned because one is more likely to have fear-arousing experiences during the night than in the daytime. And this is also linked to fears and traumas that incurred in infancy and childhood when you were helpless. And as we grow older, we learn to anticipate danger and recognize the slight feelings of apprehension. Absolutely, and I know uh, one of the metaphors are, I always think about with this is uh, moving away from the uh, the light of the campfire off into the forest. Into the unknown. Into the unknown. It's uh, You can stay near the fire, but uh, you're really going to have experience a lot more growth if you choose to go out into the forest where it looks darkest to you. Right, right, right? like King Arthur and the, and the, the round bloody table. Knights of the Round Table. Yeah, for sure. So next we've got neurotic anxiety, and this is aroused by a perception of danger from the instincts. So this characterizes a nervous person who is always expecting something horrible to happen, and they're also afraid of what they're going to do in response, so letting their impulses run amok in a sense. So this can also be seen in phobias where the intensity of the fear is out of proportion to the actual danger of the object which the person is afraid of. So Freud had one patient, a woman who was severely afraid of touching anything rubber, and this developed into a phobia in, um, that was that stemmed from childhood because... One time she was given a balloon from her father and she broke her sister's balloon in a fit of anger and then she was punished for it. So this is when impulsive behavior gets someone in trouble, they learn how dangerous the instincts are. And that just gets reinforced. So slaps and spankings and other forms of punishment show the child that impulsive instinctual gratification leads to a state of discomfort. So a child can acquire neurotic anxiety for being impulsive. But the thing is, is that it's important to recognize that we all, we're all neurotic. We're all on that spectrum, essentially. But what matters most is to how much that, that 
neuroticism controls our lives. Yeah, a degree of negative emotion is not necessarily a bad thing, but you can imagine that having no propensity for experiencing negative emotion would probably be just as bad as experiencing negative emotion all the time, for different reasons, obviously, but the way the system was designed to work is to make us feel uncomfortable when we're, I guess, not orienting ourselves properly in the world. And it kind of helps steer back towards the uh, the right aim, I suppose. And I know when we were trying to, I guess, figure out what this what this felt like before is it's not so much giving you something to aim at, but it's giving you something to run away from. You know what I mean? Mm. It it drives you in, I guess, a very random direction forward, just away from something that's that's coming from behind. So yeah, so there's definitely there are very positive aspects to of anxiety, which we're gonna talk a bit more later on too um so the last one is moral anxiety so this one is experience of a f- as feelings of shame and or guilt in the ego and is activated by perception of danger from the conscious conscience also known as the superego in freudian terms um and this is the internalized ag- agent of parental authority that threatens to punish the person for doing or thinking something which transgresses the perfectionistic aims of our ideals that have been laid down in the personality from our parents. So the original fear from which moral anxiety is derived from is the objective fear of punishing parents. And what's interesting too is that virtuous individuals experience tend to experience more shame than the unvirtuous because they feel guilty for even thinking bad thoughts, essentially. Yeah, and if the, the thought itself is what makes you uncomfortable it it seems self-evident that you would be less likely to manifest that behavior than if uh, it just didn't make you feel uncomfortable at all because you would have i guess no basis for which to to not do it right Mm -hmm. you know it's Mm -hmm. like well how does that make me feel nothing it's like okay well let's see what happens (laughs) of course all right so let's uh, talk a little bit about how distorted thinking can increase our stress and anxiety Okay, so we're going to look at um, a bunch of cognitive distortions that are found in cognitive behavior therapy. So all or nothing thinking. Now, this happens when you feel you're not perfect and you view yourself as a total failure and there's no middle ground. So a good response to this is reframing the situation and also having self-compassion for yourself is very key. Um... I think I experienced this when I was writing one of my essays for um, for school, and um, I was kind of punishing myself because I didn't prepare enough ahead, and I realized, you know, the night before that, you know, maybe I should have worked a bit bit more on it, but then, um, yeah, I just decided to, to challenge those thoughts, and um, I realized that even though this happened, I did work... I did work on the paper earlier than I ever have before, so I have been improving and working um, and reducing my procrastination in a sense. And um, even though I felt like a failure in that instance, it doesn't really, it doesn't exactly mean I'm a failure in reality. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just getting caught up in those, in that thought. So, definitely. so the next one is overgeneralization. Um, so if one thing goes wrong, you draw the general conclusion that everything will go wrong or it will happen repeatedly. So, for example, you decide to take a short walk, but due to your symptoms, 
uh, you can only get halfway around the block, and then you overgeneralize by telling yourself, I'll never be able to get around the block. And um, for me too, um, over overgeneralization, I think it's kind of filtered into how I used to view my relationships with women mm. in a way. And it's kind of made me think that, you know, most of them didn't work out so well in the past. So what makes me think that, you Anything know, will be different in the future, yeah. and yeah, that that must mean X. Yeah, yeah, that can be uh, that can be tough to uh, to get through for sure. But that's an assumption too, right? Mm-hmm. And assumptions are very deadly. Yeah, I think, maybe, and maybe, we can maybe. never tell what's gonna you know unfold. Really, yeah, you don't want to try to be one of these uh, a prophet that can predict the future, right? It's uh, <laughs> it is a little on the narcissistic side. I'll give you that. Uh, so next, we got the mental filtering of our experience. So filtering out the positives in experience and focusing solely on the negatives and on the disappointments, constantly doing this can lead to a rather bleak vision of reality. And to counter this focus on the positive aspects of an experience and what it is you did. So I think this is also tied into like type one and type two errors. Now it's been a while since I've really looked at this phenomenon, so again I'm not I can't remember which one is which, but basically you have a situation where you uh, think something is false when in fact it's true, and another situation where you uh, think it's true but in fact it's false. Now there are different costs associated with these errors. Like if you were to think that the uh, the sound of rustling in the leaves behind you is a tiger, and you react accordingly, that has a pretty low cost to it. Because if you turn around and there's no tiger there, it's like oh, okay, then I can just calm down again, and everything's fine. If, however, you think that the tiger behind you is just the rustling of the leaves, there's a huge cost associated with that. Because if you're wrong, you die. So it's usually better to err on the side of caution in that case, because even if you're a little bit overly paranoid, it's probably not going to get you killed. But nowadays, because there are very few real physical dangers compared to 10,000 years ago when literally everything would kill you, and you really didn't have a lot of recourse for that, <laughs> that uh, these, uh, these systems that kept us alive back then are uh, possibly doing us a little bit more harm than good these days. Right, right. But there's also that protective aspect too definitely Um, so disqualifying the positive so you actively transform a neutral or positive experience into a negative one so uh, one example let's say you get a a message from a friend you haven't talked to in a while Um, you get a, a voicemail and you automatically assume that you know they're just talking to you to you know get something out of Mm -hmm. you or to manipulate you or something like that you're Mm -hmm. again you're just you're assuming it and you're taking something that could quite possibly a positive thing into uh, more worst case scenario right yeah yeah Yeah. and i guess without much evidence (laughs) yeah and that can be very dangerous but again if you've uh i I could see how it would be a natural response if uh, for example you had just gone through a number of these cases of someone trying to manipulate you or just want something out of you Right, rather than treating you as an end in yourself, so Very to speak, sure. yeah. then uh, then that's going to prime you again for the next time something like that happens. That you're uh, a lot more on guard. Now I know when if people's bo- uh, I guess their boundaries are a little bit too porous and they get taken advantage of, they might react by making their boundaries far too rigid and end up damaging other relationships that didn't have a problem before because now they're being too uh, too rigid with their boundaries. So you want to make sure that you got that wall up, but you also want to make sure that it is porous and you can, you know, let love flow both ways, so to speak. Very key distinction. Yeah, and you also don't want to uh, believe that you can read somebody else's mind. 
You know, it's uh, we, we, we aren't mind readers. We can make inferences about behavior, but we got to take our own opinions with a grain of salt sometimes. Yes, and this is exactly what our next one is about, jumping to conclusions. So you jump to a negative interpretation, even though it's not supported by the facts. And you conclude that someone is thinking negative things about you and then treat it as an established fact, even though that person has never given you cause to think this way. Um, And I've seen this. (laughs) I've seen this happen a lot around me. It kind of triggers me, too, because Mm -hmm. I just think to myself, you don't know that for sure, you know? It's like like putting words in someone else's mouth. So what you're saying is... (laughs) Yeah, we all all know the the infamous Kathy Newman interview with, uh, with Peterson, and by the end of it, I think he was just in stitches just laughing at this person. But initially what he did was rather than... or I guess listening with the intent to respond, he was trying to, uh, I guess, really just lean in and figure out, who exactly is this person talking to? (laughs) It's not about me, right? you gotta got to distance yourself a little bit from that, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. it it was kind of embarrassing to watch that. It's like, is this the state of journalism these days, where it's like, okay, so he says one thing, the audience hears it, but apparently the interviewer heard him say something completely different. Where it's like, you're really just trying to shoehorn your guest into a particular narrative, and it's really despicable to watch. So, uh... Yeah, we've been seeing more and more of it, for sure. But it was hilarious. I think it was a huge turning point in the culture war, because I think people really started to see, it's like, okay, what what is this woman doing? Yeah, well, it shows the hardcore bias of it, too, right? Yeah, and it's it's like, you know what, if you want to be a a biased news outlet, that's fine, but you should probably be pretty upfront with that, rather than trying to say, oh, this is objective journalism. Mind you, I can yeah. see how if you were to make that claim and say, oh, this is the objective truth, and you get people to believe that, you can kind of turn that culture in a, in a different direction, right? So uh, we, I think we, I guess, put maybe too much trust in our journalists, and uh, we should probably figure that out. <laughs> but, Absolutely. So. so next we've got catastrophizing, which is also known as magnifying, and this is basically disproportionately increasing the importance of something that's happening or something that didn't go the way you wanted it to. Um, so making a mountain out of a molehill a little bit? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, it, I guess if you, you don't really address those feelings and those thoughts, it's very easy to fall down this, this pathway. And quite often you'll lead yourself into these self-fulfilling prophecies where it's like, okay, well, I believe this guy's got a problem with me, so I'm going to treat him like crap. And now he treats me like crap, so obviously he has a problem with me. Well, at least I was right. <laughs> yeah, you know, not uh, not ideal. Yeah, and this is why a lot of self questioning, I think, is important to just to really <clears throat> discern the facts of the situation as mm-hmm. well. Um, so next, we've got <clears throat> relying on emotional reasoning when you believe the way that you feel is the way you are. So if I feel like a failure of learning how to do. learning how to do something, therefore I am a failure. So to counter this distortion, remind yourself that people often jump to conclusions based on knee-jerk emotional reactions of the moment, but these conclusions do not reflect who they really are. Emotions arise in response to causes and conditions of the moment and are only temporary. So refuse to treat them as proof of who you are. Who you are is made up of a complex combination of factors and are constantly developing all right we also have the uh using should statements so i guess this is sort of like trying to derive an ought from an is 
David Hume would be rolling in his grave. (laughs) (laughs) So when you try to motivate yourself and push yourself into shape mentally or physically by using shoulds and shouldn'ts, oughts, musts, you know, things like this, you're trying to like moralize yourself into better behavior. But uh, I guess like uh, Peterson was saying, you got to treat yourself like you're someone you're responsible for taking care of. So sometimes dealing with yourself is like trying to deal with a petulant child. Because I think we all still have that petulant child in us in order to preserve our own interests. So you probably don't want to get rid of that. But uh, when you try to, I guess, moralize yourself into doing something, you're not going to do it for very long. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like trying to like set up the ideal day, but it's a day that you definitely wouldn't want to have. It's like, well, I'm going to do all these self-development things. I'm going to leave no time for anything enjoyable or anything like that. You're, you're going to rebel against yourself pretty quick. And when you have a, an internal mutiny... It's not going to help your anxiety. It's going to make it a lot worse. Yeah, and it's whether whether you really want it or not, like, for yourself. And it's important to ask where these shoulds and shouldn'ts are coming from, because I think this goes back to the superego and our, you know, our parental influences and other authority figures and how they tried to teach us, but what not necessarily everything they tried to teach us is all beneficial for us at the same time too or really um takes in our needs into consideration as well mm-hmm. so and uh, that can lead to labeling ourselves or other people and when we do this like say well i'm incompetent or he's irresponsible you're basically engaging in this sort of overgeneralization because no one is just one thing and finding different ways to describe what happened, uh, words that stick to the facts and don't include labels. So rather than saying, I'm incompetent, try, well, this is hard to learn, I'm going to keep at it. Or I'm not there yet. And I think adding that word yet is very important because it gives you that uh, that room for growth. Uh, I guess one of the things that I, uh, I guess I didn't think about this before, but I remember reading about this study where the, uh, they had kids and they split them into different groups and half of them were told that they were really smart. And half of them were told they made a really good effort. And the kids that made a good effort were much more resilient to failure because they Mm -hmm. realized, well, I mean, it's just an effort thing. I can just try again. Whereas the kids that were told that they were smart would often avoid challenges because they realized, well, if I fail, I'm not going to be smart anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important not to tell people that they're smart because if you get that in your head, You'll probably do whatever you can to preserve it because it's a nice label to have. Whereas if you just praise people based on the effort, they realize, okay, well, the praise I receive is proportional to the effort I put into it rather than some intrinsic trait about my personality, which makes it much more difficult to change it. Very good point. Um, So the last one with personalization, and this is a major trigger for self-blame. It occurs when you erroneously see yourself as the cause of some external negative event, even though you weren't responsible for it. An example is when you feel responsible for whether people have a good time when you're with them. You can counter this cognitive distortion by putting in perspective what you can actually control in this life. You certainly don't control what other people are thinking or how they're feeling or whether they're having fun. It's always been that way and always will be. And all you can do is act with kindness and with care for yourself and others. And the rest is out of your control. And this pretty much speaks to attitude of stoicism mm-hmm. very much. And, um, yeah, recognizing which which things are in your control and why worry about the things that, that are not, right? Yeah, what was that, uh, what was it in Psalms or one of those other sections or something to do with, you know, give me the, uh, 
what was it the courage to change things I can the what was the next part um <laughs> yeah, and then the wisdom to know the difference or like I guess yeah. The, uh, I probably should have looked that up. <laughs> Whatever. You guys know what I mean. It's it's basically knowing what you can control and focusing on that rather than trying to stress about things you can't control. Now, I know I've fallen prey to this in the past where I I get so stressed out over the way other people behave, whereas I realize, hey, I got no control over the way other people behave. I can only, uh, I guess, address the way I respond to it because from what I've heard, life is about 90% the way you react to things, and only about 10% what actually happens to you. It, it sounds better if you put it in the opposite order, but it's, <laughs> it, it's already on tape, so I, I can't go back and do it again. <laughs> right. Um, so next we'll just take a look at the, uh, uh, the upside of anxiety, uh, the five ways it helps us become our best selves. So um, psychologists refer to the Yerkes-Dodson law, which suggests that we... We need just the right amount of arousal and anxiety to perform optimally. With either too little or too much anxiety, we're not able to perform at an optimal level. And this, um, just one thing, this also um, connects with the idea of being oriented between order and chaos, which Peterson mentions, because when you're you're in that, that nice middle zone, you're woken up enough that you're paying attention to things and you're not gonna you know you're not gonna fall asleep at the wheel so to say so um yeah and you don't want to have too little stress that you're not really motivated to do anything about your situation either like i know i we talked a little bit about this when when i was in university i just spent uh way too much time worrying about stress so i sort of understressed myself a little bit uh a little bit too much and i think i didn't perform at a high enough level because there there wasn't really a lot of stakes to it because at the end of the day it's like you know you just get the piece of paper and you get out of there it doesn't really matter where where you graduate in terms of your marks unless there's a certain mm. program that you're going to after the fact that needs a certain gpa or something like that as long as you get that piece of paper and just get out then there's uh not a whole lot of incentive to to really push yourself and i think that probably held me back a little bit more than i care to admit yeah, me too. I mean, there were times I was just plain apathetic and I was just wondering why I was there. So, <laughs> but at the same time, I was anxious about my future, of course, and where this was all leading me to. Well, I also think there's uh I think there's too many people that are forced to go to university. Well, when I say forced, I mean like more coerced, like you have to do this otherwise you're screwed. Like no one will hire you, not even Tim Hortons or McDonald's if you don't get a university degree and now everybody has one, so now they're worthless. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I think the the thinking was like if we can get uh more people into college, we'll all just get smarter because all the smart people go to college, but it's kind of stupid, right? It's like saying, well, if we want people to be taller, let's put them all on basketball teams. Because all the tall people are on basketball. It's like, no, no, you're putting the cart before the horse. It doesn't really work like that. Yeah. And I don't think it's an ideal environment for everybody. Uh, I think more people should be going into the trades and figuring out how to add value to other people's lives rather than just figuring out how to get themselves into an ivory tower upon which they could just look down at everybody else and like, oh, look at this. I'm way smarter than you. It's like, yeah, okay. But now everybody has that same qualification. So now it's kind of meaningless. So Yeah, yeah. And it's obviously important to figure out more specializations 
Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be an engineer, a doctor, a physicist, like something like that, then yeah, definitely go to post-secondary because you have to. Yeah. But if if you don't want to do that, just going to it for the sake of it, especially now, I mean, it's probably worse in the States. I mean, they're they're racking up like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like you think school's expensive here? Like I think yeah. our tuition is maybe five to six thousand Canadian or Canadian shekels every year, right? So <laughs> that, that's like five bucks American. But the uh, and in, in Montreal and Quebec, it's even cheaper. It's like twelve hundred bucks a year, and they're the ones out protesting because it's too expensive. Bloody socialists. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the five upsides of anxiety. So number one, with some anxiety. We tend to think before we act, so we very carefully consider the effects of our behavior on others, which means we're more likely to be empathic. And I think that makes sense because, you know, for me, I, you know, I don't really want (laughs) to, I don't want to say things, I I don't know, I don't want to... Well, as as I'm training, yeah, to to become a therapist as well, but... um, you know, it's it's just a vital ability in of a, of itself to let's say mentalize and um, mm. recognize that people, other people, have their own desires, beliefs, and wants. Motivation, right? Like they're mm. coming from a different place, and unless you're walking in their shoes, you're you might be able to get a glimpse of what they might be thinking. But unless mm. you've had their entire life experience, underst- like we don't even understand our own motivations exactly. for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, how you can understand somebody else's, right? It's I guess you could try to. Like have a dialogue and try to at least suss out what it is, but I think most of the time it's 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 difficult to know what your motivations are because we don't really know who we are. Like right. like Kierkegaard was saying, it's like if that's going to be our highest priority to become who we are, it's not like it's going to be bloody easy. True, you know, it's True. it's going to be a very very difficult task. Uh, number yeah. two, uh, a bit of anxiety prevents us from taking potentially dangerous risks. Better idea not to approach the world as a totally safe place, since in reality it's not free of danger. So if you don't have any propensity for anxiety whatsoever, you're probably more likely to run into bad situations just because you have no means by which to avoid them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, number three, anxiety can motivate us to accomplish tasks. For example, arriving on time for visiting the doctor when we're concerned about our health issues. And this involves stress, but it, it is the excessive amounts that we want to watch out for. Um, so yeah, again, if we didn't worry about anything, we wouldn't really get much accomplished. You wouldn't or go to the doctor. Take care of ourselves or do yeah. what we need to do, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so also, number four, anxiety and guilt tend to go hand in hand. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with a little bit of guilt if it makes us think about how our behavior might affect the functioning and feelings of those in our lives but high levels of guilt can lead to shame and embarrassment Mm -hmm. and yeah i think you really want to um you really want to yeah just take other people's perspective into account right Mm -hmm. Mm because if you don't it would be very difficult to maintain social cohesion you know, if uh, if nobody gave a shit about anybody else, and that's why I think this it occurs at such a visceral level, right? The uh, like even our development of language was a way of keeping track of, I guess, the tit for tat that we have to do, the exchange we have with other people, uh, and if we didn't take that into account, I imagine all of those people would probably have just died out. You know, if they weren't murdered outright by their compatriots they would have been thrown into exile because they're just too much of a dick to be around Mm -hmm. right but i mean but i mean now we don't really have those same constraints 
And I think part of the reason why you can usually get away with being a dick nowadays is that we don't have these really, well, any need to, to really be that close to people. You know, mm. with uh, with the welfare state and whatnot, it's uh, it's very easy to just sort of say, well, just give me my check and I'll, I'll leave you alone. You know? Right, right. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that might have been lost a little bit. But if you are feeling... I guess that guilt and that embarrassment, I guess check your relationships with other people. Check in a little bit and see uh, see if you can get a bit of a perspective on how you're perceived by other people. It's uh, definitely an uncomfortable process. <laughs> I, think, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people want to know how other people think of them. And I suppose, too, an argument could be made that it's really none of your business what other people, <laughs> what other people think of you. But uh, if you are, I guess, concerned about your relationships and you are interested in self-development, getting at least a bit of a handle on it might help improve your self-awareness. And if you realize, wow, I just piss a lot of people off because I'm a dick to them, well, if if you want that, fine. You know, who am I to say that you shouldn't be a dick? But if uh, if you are looking to improve a little bit, this might be a good avenue to, to, to look at, right? For sure. Um... And, um, I just find too, like if I, sometimes when I check in with other people, they, they just let me know, like things are okay. Sometimes it's something I might be imagining too, because Mm -hmm. of high anxiety as well. Yeah. And that could be pretty reassuring too. It's like, no, you're, you're not a dick. Don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, but I guess then it's like, okay, well now what, what else could be the problem? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you're you're back to square one there but it's good to practice that honest conversation too it just it makes a difference for sure um so number five is um so those of us who carry just the right amount of anxiety tend to be um tend to do better in tending to the various demands of life so yeah you don't want to have zero anxiety and you don't want to have uncontrollable anxiety either so a nice uh nice balance right in the middle and that's sort of the nature of the uh the virtues, right? It's sort of yeah, a, the golden mean. The golden mean between the, between the two extremes. Yeah, you mm-hmm. don't want to be uh, cowardly and you don't want to be foolhardy. You want to be courageous, right? Uh, right in the middle, walking on the back of that snake. You know, definitely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the solutions that you guys might be able to employ to deal with your anxiety. So uh, for the first one, and um, this connects with um, our depression episode as well. It's always a good idea to connect with others, and this helps reduce loneliness, a sense of isolation, uh, which can bring about more anxiety. So um, talking face-to-face with somebody about our worries usually makes them seem less overwhelming, and it's um, a good idea to try scheduling regular meetups with friends or, or support group. Definitely, and I think uh, relaxation techniques are also really important, like uh, deep breathing mindfulness, meditation, and progressive muscle relaxation. Uh, So to manage stress, stay grounded in the present and calm the nervous system down. So this is something that uh, the body will feed back into the mind and the mind back into the body, and this is a very strong connection. So if you're able to physically calm yourself down, and I suppose without going uh, down the drugs and alcohol route as best you can, uh, these techniques will probably uh, be able to be iterated into the future more successfully, right? Uh, because you want to be able to relax without ending up with cirrhosis of the liver in 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting because even if I'm, um, I noticed that when I was walking up to a lecture or to one of the residencies for my school, I noticed that I, you know, I'd start feeling really nervous and anxious as I was mm-hmm. walking up the stairs and, um, yeah, I so I started practicing just doing some deep breathing before, you know, I left my car to go up and 
and walk there, and it really helped me just uh, center myself. Mm-hmm. And be, yeah. And with the uh, the mindfulness thing, I notice now it's if if you try to be a lot more conscious about the sensations you're experiencing, like the feeling of the sun, the feeling of the wind, the temperature of the air, the smells that are going on around you, and you try to just fill your consciousness with that which is actually going on in the moment, it leaves a lot less of your mind available to ruminate about the problems of the day. Very good point. So next is... Um... We have some books that we wanted to suggest, and one of them is called Mind Over Mood, which is by Greenberger and Podesky, and this is a really great um, self-help book that really, it helps you understand anxious thoughts and uh, where they might be coming from, and it includes a bunch of um, writing activities to help you challenge your cognitive distortions and to see where the evidence really lies. in them and just to really help you yeah sort sort out those anxious thoughts and feelings and understand them better very helpful um the next one is called feeling the feeling good handbook by david burns um and again this teaches you um cognitive behavior therapy principles um to work through um and to yeah understand your your self-defeating thoughts as well yeah i think it's important we touch a little bit on cbt because this is a a form of therapy that's actually rated as about as successful as medication so if you do both your your results are probably going to be a lot better but unfortunately medication doesn't work for everybody it's uh i think about two-thirds of people it works for but there's still going to be that third that it doesn't now you do have a variety of medications to choose from but unfortunately they they can take about a month to have an effect and i I find that like just insane like you'd have to take pills every day for a month and you wouldn't even know if it's it's working and and the other thing is it could make it worse yeah it's hard to know and the side effects uh are nothing to laugh at either i mean you have to really pick your poison sometimes where it's like do i really want to you know feel just a little bit more on the level, but then also have to deal with dry mouth, like diarrhea, vomiting, <laughs> potential mm. death, all this other stuff, right? Like they found with, uh, what was it, Not was it Paxil? Or one of these drugs that they actually found that uh, in people under 18 that were taking it, it would just skyrocket their suicide risk. Which is like, okay, well, if you're trying to deal with a psychological intervention, that's a bad side effect to have. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if, it's like, it'd be like if chemo gave you extra cancer. You know what I mean? You, it's like the, uh, oh, it's almost ironic. that. Yeah, that's what happened with me and Prozac. Like, I was maybe, getting worse. Maybe that's what, no, Matt, maybe it was Prozac, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, did uh, did you find any success in, uh, in any medical interventions? Yeah, yeah, I, um, Ciprolex did help, but the downside was that I gained weight. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, uh, there's a definitely a trade-off with that. Um, but I think the best one... Uh, that worked for me was Wellbutrin, mm-hmm. and um, that one gives you a bit more energy, and the, the side effects aren't very severe. That's so. good, yeah. And I guess if, if you're at the point where you uh, you can't even get out of bed in the morning because you know you're so afraid of the world and you're so depressed about life and all that stuff, then this might be a good place to start. Uh, so I guess you probably want to talk to your doctor about that. Yeah, so that's where you go for that stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, and I guess they could get you a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, next one is exercising regularly. Um, you want to try to aim for at least 30 minutes on most days, um, which can be broken up into shorter periods if need be. Um, activities like walking, swimming, martial arts, yoga, 
cardio, the elliptical. Yep, switch it up, keep the body guessing. I mean, I found that uh, from what I've been reading in the videos that I've been watching in my own experience, uh, you want to be consistent, but then switch it up after you've kind of starting to get used to it. You want to give the body some surprise because the body will adapt to whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, challenge it a bit. Yeah, so and then uh, and also figure out exactly what your goals are. I mean, if uh, if your goals are to, I guess, get a little bit more, uh, you know, better in shape, stuff like that. That's going to be a different training regimen than if you want to be a power lifter or if you want to be a bodybuilder. Yeah, more muscle mass. Yeah, exactly. Like for example, uh, bodybuilders, although they look amazing, their strength isn't as functional as a power lifter. But a power mm. lifter just looks like a big dumpy bastard. You know, they, <laughs> but they're strong as fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah, so if yeah. uh, if you want to just look good, then uh, it's going to be a bit of a different program than if you want to just be a, an Olympic weightlifting champion or something like that. So just 30 minutes a day. I mean, try to do uh, either cardio or weight training. I mean, you can do both, but it's it's not going to be as ideal as focusing on one day and then one on the other day because you want to make sure that you have the glucose supply to actually be able to accomplish what you're trying to do that day. And if you're splitting it between uh, cardio and uh, and weight training... I don't know, if your goal is to look really jacked, cardio is probably not going to be as beneficial for you. And if your goal is to be able to run a marathon, weight training not going to be as ideal as training your cardio, <laughs> right? But if you just want to have, like, well-balanced fitness, then, yeah, going back and forth between the two is probably going to be a, a good idea. But, again, we're not fitness gurus, and there's going to be way more <laughs> experienced people online that are going to give you much better advice than we could on that, so. For sure. These are just some ideas, mm -hmm. and... Um, next is sleeping, of course, another very um, important aspect of lifestyle, um, because a lack of sleep can worsen our anxious thoughts and feelings. And aim for seven to, and it's good to aim for seven to nine hours. Um, I know, of course, that um, when anxiety is more prevalent in my life, I'm likely to stay up later or wake up in the middle of the night, and that mm -hmm. that makes it a tough tough go and it's gonna sure. feed right back into it too right? yeah yeah you're gonna feel even worse the next day and yeah exactly you know, but there are there are still some things you can do um to uh to fall asleep easier um one of them which i should do more of is look at less screens <laughs> before i go to bed because i love my i like watching youtube for like the mm -hmm. last you know hour of the day and definitely uh, so do i there's a, a thing in android where you can have a blue light filter that turns on at a certain time of day so I've noticed now, like, if I'm on my phone, it'll all of a sudden kind of have, like, a, the blue hue will just disappear out of it. And I'm like, oh, it's 1 o'clock. It's time to go to bed. Hmm. Or at least it's going to be time to go to bed in an hour. So at least it, it kind of triggers me for that. But, yeah, trying to get away from that blue light uh, at least a couple hours before bed will probably help you uh, sleep. Yeah, I've been trying to read a bit more as well. Um, also... Um, just back to our last point, exercise helps mm -hmm. you sleep better. Yeah. Don't do it uh, too close to your to your bedtime because that's going to kind of like you know, you're, you're, jack you're, up your nervous system, right? Exactly. But it will um, it will help you um, maintain a healthier sleep cycle. Definitely. Now, there are some things that would uh, interfere with your ability to sleep properly, like uh, excessive consumption of caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine. Uh, so alcohol, for example... I mean, it can help you to lose consciousness. I don't think anybody would object to that, right? <laughs> but it's not really sleep, right? It's just, you're just passed out. You're not, you're not getting the deep REM sleep you need to properly incorporate long-term memories or to synthesize uh, your muscles uh, and the proteins and all that stuff. So you're, you're not getting any of the benefits of sleep. You're just staying in the same spot for a while. <laughs> yeah, and I, I tend to wake up earlier, too, yeah. when I drink. 
so from the dehydration as well. Yeah, yeah, I definitely remember that uh, that in school. It would be the, the excuse for everybody to get out and go out for breakfast. So that <laughs> it wasn't so bad because everyone was like 8 o'clock in the morning. Everyone's wide awake. But uh, yeah, 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 you definitely want to try to keep that to a minimum. And it's it's much easier when you're in your 20s. By the time you hit your 30s, hangovers last more than a day. More than a day, which is insane. It's a fact of life. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I don't really drink too much, to be honest with you, because it's uh, the, the side effects and the costs associated with it. Like, you know, up here in Canada, booze is pretty expensive. Uh, so if you're going to drink, it can become a very expensive hobby. Um, and you, you don't want to do that to yourself, right? It's something like if you were to drink on a Friday, I mean, by Sunday, you might be good to go. But it's a, it's a complete waste of a weekend. As yeah. far as I'm concerned, so yeah, and uh, it's not—it's terrible for your mood regulation overall. It's inherently a depressant. It inherently you know? it is, yeah. And then all the recovery time after that—it's—it's uh, it's not great. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying go completely cold turkey or whatever. You can still—it's <laughs> good to always, yeah, enjoy yeah, just, yourself once. Yeah, but acknowledge the cost. Yeah, you know, so it's yeah. it's all right to 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 do that as long as you're willing to pay the price for it. Yeah, and lastly to. To help resolve chronic worrying, um, you can set aside a worry period. So maybe set aside 20 minutes or half an hour just to give the anxiety some attention in a way. Definitely. Let it acknowledge itself. Get it, get itself out there a little bit so that you can yeah. uh, figure out what you're anxious about, first of all. That's, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. important. I mean, if you're, if you're just worried, I mean, literally sit down and have a conversation with yourself and ask yourself point blank questions because you're, you can come up with an answer like that when you ask the right question. And that's, that's really half the battle. And it's like, why exactly is it that I feel this way? It's like, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's right. It's like, I, I haven't paid these bills in quite a while. And you know, and the, the, there's some, some sickness in the family that I haven't mm. really addressed. And some of my relationships aren't doing too. And eventually you're just like, okay, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> like that's enough. Right. I don't want to hear anymore. You know, cause yeah. uh, once you sit down and you ask that question, you, you better be prepared for the answer because it's, uh, it's much easier to just distract yourself out of it than it is to, uh, to sit down and figure out a solution to it. But asking the right question, I think is important. For sure. Um, also challenging anxious thoughts. So, um, you know, if you notice that you're shaming and guilting yourself a lot, one thing I did was I just wrote down a bunch of the thoughts that were coming to me just on one side of the page, and on the right side I wrote counter thoughts to them in order to get a more balanced perspective on things and just doing that it helped me it helped me a lot too because yeah i think having the uh sort of internal round table of all of your different voices right can sometimes be important because like there'll be times if you just sort of sit quietly you can figure out okay well what does angry steve think about this or what does sort of mm. depressive steve think about this our micro personality exactly yeah. what is what does childhood steve think of this yeah you know what and i find i'll often get the most honest answer from from asking those people specifically right you know so right. you can figure out from this perspective what does it feel like or what about this perspective you know because sometimes i'll have like two completely counterintuitive arguments going like waging war in my mind to try to figure out like okay well which one is more true than the other and then like well they're both kind of true but, right but what side am i going to fall on and on what grounds would i make that decision and that can be kind of anxiety provoking in and of itself but i think what helps me is sort of realizing I don't have all the answers. And guess what? I don't have to have all the answers either. <laughs> yeah. Know? And just sometimes to let those sides have a conversation yeah, rather than nothing, you know, yeah. I found that was really 
helpful. Yeah, which would uh, tie in uh, nicely to our next episode, which is going to be on free speech. So you definitely want to allow free speech to go on in your own mind, you know, to at least get that stuff out there and not silence the conversation or shut it down or throw in a bunch of last-minute security fees so they can't show up. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Those restrictions, you gotta, yeah, really, we need to pay attention to, for sure. Exactly. So, I mean, uh, we could talk a little bit about some of the things that have caused us anxiety in the past. Like, I know for me... Uh, a couple of years ago when my wife and I were struggling to have children, this was probably one of the most anxiety-provoking things in my entire life. Like, this had me, like, right down to the bottom. I was sort of like, okay, well, we've done all this, we've worked up until this point uh, to set our lives up in such a way that would facilitate this process, and it really felt like I'd been robbed of something. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's, uh, that was a very terrifying time in my life, because I I didn't know if I was going to make it through it. Like, I, I really didn't know. I was sort of thinking, okay, well, how could I, how could I live a life outside of that possibility? And yeah. I and I couldn't come come up with anything. But I mean, having an issue like that, and then if it turned out that it was a permanent problem, it would probably take about a year to like actually be able to incorporate that. But uh, it turns out those uh, those problems weren't all that serious. So, mm-hmm. but again, mm-hmm. like we were saying before, I was totally catastrophizing. I was maximizing, making mountains out of molehills, and it was yeah, it was a mess. Well, it seems like a fundamental threat to your existence in yeah. a certain sense too. It definitely felt that way, and I, I guess I hadn't felt anything like that before. And if I had, it sort of seemed superficial by comparison. But I mean, looking into the future, I'm thinking, well, man, the kind of things I think are a problem now are going to pale in comparison to the kind of chaos and catastrophe that life's going to throw at me in the next 50 years, or however long it's going to be that I live. Who knows, right? (laughs) But we all know that the end is coming soon. That reaper's coming for all of us. So, uh, you know, we got to figure out what to do with the time that we're here. And I think now we're sort of, now that we're in our, like, early 30s, it's, uh, we've got out of school and we've got all you know the things we need to to sort of live our lives however we want but now all of the choices are on us you know now there's there's no teachers there's no parents telling you what to do or anything like that we're so much now, more responsible yeah and picking up that responsibility and bearing it is how we're going to create that meaning right exactly. so so i think that's part of the reason why we're doing this now is because we want to say take what we've learned and then distill it into something useful for people and then send it out there. So that's why we want to go over stuff like psychology and philosophy and all this kind of stuff to uh, try to reach some people out there who might be interested in learning about these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah, using some of our personal experiences as well and kind of mining the gold, I guess, from the past in a certain sense, too. Yeah, to uh, to let people know that they're not uh, alone when they're facing these things. And, I mean, we all, we're all going to face, I guess, different challenges in life. But I'm sure there's going to be a few uh, consistencies between how we respond to them, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's another thing. I just... I just sometimes get annoyed just scrolling through my Facebook feed. Oh, and I, I just see so much pointless crap, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to be part of something more meaningful where we're just, yeah, we're bringing these important ideas out. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think something you've tu- useful. Yeah. You've touched on something important there. Uh, social media can be pretty damn cancerous. So <laughs> you want to keep that, uh, keep Detective. that, yeah, keep that in check. And it's important. I think we got to this before the end of the show because uh, what can happen on social media is. Oh, what was that phrase? It was like you're, you, uh, you sort of experience your life with all the outtakes, but when you're on social media, all you're seeing is other people's highlight reels. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, look at that beautiful vacation, and oh, look at that amazing experience, and all. And it's like it's just a constant stream of how much better everyone else's life is than yours. 
you know and then of yeah. course there's you know the idiot humble brags that are on there or the the negging of themselves where it's really just a disguised form of narcissism exactly yeah yeah, yeah. So, and all the trolling and oh it's, yes. but it's just a sliver really of you know yeah it's not well. uh it's not really reality is it? <laughs> but can you imagine like we're we're part of this generation now where we actually grew up in a time before the internet like it only really came around in like 1994 when we were like nine years old so i mean exactly. we, we remember playing outside we remember team sports we remember yeah. uh what else do we remember? Well, we remember dial-up modems. You remember those? <laughs> I remember. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I remember that, too. Yeah, so we kind of crossed over from the threshold of a more traditional childhood, in a sense. Yeah, where we, we, we got that last digital. little bit of it, and then uh, nowadays it's like, well, I mean, how, what, what age do kids get phones now? I don't understand. Like, for me, like, we only got phones in high school, and those were like Nokia 5200 or 5900 series, so like Snake. Way they get them way earlier now. I'm pretty sure. What do you think would be an appropriate age to get a cell phone? I think wow. like, like forty. <laughs> <laughs> Safest time to get one. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, maybe high school. Yeah, the, you know, because that's you know that's when things are getting a little more complicated. Yeah, more social. You gotta going be out more. And... Yeah, you gotta be involved. You gotta be able to connect with people. But it's like, I guess for us, it's like our phones would only call people we didn't have text messaging you know right right that was a, that was sort of a new thing when we were around because then we had t9 remember you'd have to put, punch the number keys to to get to the right letter and then you could spell out words like that but now like my god like there's like there's social media and like i couldn't even imagine doing because i mean you, you have to have a whole separate life online mm-hmm. you know now yeah. we didn't have a separate online life nobody gave a shit about myspace you know, that was yeah. sort of like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. That's where you put all your information online. Isn't that what they told us not to do? <laughs> like, that was, like, the biggest thing. It's like, don't talk to strangers on the Internet. And it's like, now that's all we do is argue with strangers on the Internet. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe they were onto something there. But I guess they were worried about, you know, uh, like, creepers and all that shit, trying to get kids' personal information. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's a problem. But now it's like uh, you got people like Facebook selling it to the highest bidder and uh, Twitter using it to get you fired and... <laughs> It's got a shit that you never would have anticipated. It's like, wait, wait a minute. So what? People would try to get you fired even though they don't know you, and they're just doing it to screw you over. It's like, yes, that happens all the time. <laughs> so yeah, you got to be careful with your social media usage. And I guess my policy is, is I don't say anything on social media that I wouldn't say to someone's face. You know what I mean? It's Good like I, I use my real name on social media and all that stuff. Well, at least on Facebook. Outside of Facebook, uh, no, I, I use a pseudonym most of the time. That's why I got. Uh, I have this just for my own safety because it's like even if obviously there's nobody gives a shit about what I say now, right? But it's uh, if I were to develop a larger online presence in the future and they start looking back, I have to be very careful about what it is that I've said because the internet is forever. It doesn't go away. And mm-hmm. uh, if, if people are, are looking for a reason to screw you over, the social media is probably the first place to go. Like there was, a, what was it, one of the... NDP candidates out in Alberta had to pull out of the political race because of some shit she said on social media in high school a few years prior. And, wow. it, and it was just on there. And it's like, that shit will destroy you. You know what I mean? So be very, very careful about what you say. And if you wouldn't say it to someone's face, you probably shouldn't put it online. Very, very you good know, point. I'm, I'm a uh, sort of a free speech absolutist, but it, it comes with a price. You know? Yeah, I mean, you want to be smart about it. <laughs> Defer- definitely, <laughs> yeah, sense. definitely. And I mean, I mean, now, like with uh, you heard about Count Dankula getting uh, getting ganked. I've I've just briefly like 
heard about it. I don't know really the specifics though, but oh, I've great. heard of Count Dankula. Oh yeah, yeah. Dankula he was uh he made a video where he trained his girlfriend's dog to raise a paw whenever he said like oh. gas the Jews or something like that, and then he put it online and not, that's not a hugely funny joke. It's kind of clever, I guess. It's like, yeah, if you wanted to troll people, yeah, I can see that. But they they convicted him, and he's now facing jail time because of this. And it's like, wow. holy... Sh- I mean, it might not be a lot. It might be it might be three months. It might be a year. Who knows how long it's going to be. But the fact is, it's like now the, the Scottish government is more concerned about what people say online than they are about roving rape gangs running through and abducting their kids. So, wow. yeah, the UK has pretty much fallen at this point. And we need to focus our efforts here at home because Europe's fa- Europe's going to fail and collapse under its own weight of competing interests. The UK is, well, their government are a bunch of pussies and <laughs> are basically screwing them over and dis- destroying the legacy that William Wallace fought so hard for. So, uh, mm. yeah, we're going to get more into that next week uh, for our topic on free speech. So definitely come back for that one. Was there anything else you wanted to add here about anxiety? Um... One more thing that I just thought of was money. I think mm-hmm. that's a big <laughs> source of anxiety because, of course, we need it to to survive. Yeah, it's the everything. way we bargain with the future, right? We're sort of saying, I'll do this now for money so that I can exchange it for goods and services later on. You know, and yeah. it's it's a house of cards. It really is because money, it's just an idea. You know what I mean? It's a bunch of ones and zeros in a computer somewhere. It doesn't actually have any real physical value to it. None of it's backed by gold anymore. It's all based yeah. on the dollar. Yeah. Uh, and my understanding was what had happened was uh, the uh, during World War II, the U.S. had all the Allies pay for the support in gold, and then they changed it to the greenback. So now everybody will uh, sort of bid with that instead. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they can just print it. It doesn't really yeah. have any intrinsic value. It's just a bunch of cotton, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's been continuously losing its value, especially with the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and us, and us as well. I mean, right now, I think we're only about three quarters of what it's worth. So yeah, it's it's kind of scary to think it's like, okay, well, if you just put a bunch of your uh, future resources or whatever into money, and like that money could just disappear. I mean, look what happened after World War One with the uh, the Franks in Germany. Like, people were painting their walls with their francs because that's it was cheaper than wallpaper right right it's like, People oh have, like the wheelbarrows and yeah yep yeah. it's all just uh, it'll just be firewood basically so right. uh that is kind of scary but uh keeping that aside sort of make you worry about something else <laughs> it's like not only do you not have any money and you need money but money could also be rendered worthless at some point and then you're just as fucked <laughs> so uh yeah i think right. i think financial stress is uh, is a huge one but there are there are ways around this uh if you guys want you can listen to uh what is it optimal living daily uh, and their financial living daily and all that stuff uh where they'll give you these financial tips on how to live more minimally uh, I think one of the important things is 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 minimalism, where you you don't want to continuously try to acquire stuff. You know, you don't want to spend money that you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a it's a horrible cycle to get caught up in, right? Uh, it's important to live a little bit below your means so that you're not constantly exceeding that, and you can bank a little bit for the uh, the future. But uh, yeah, yeah. When I pick when I like look at things or pick something up, too. Usually, I'm asking myself whether I actually need it and because I've done that I've actually you know practiced yeah just putting it down and yep. uh, realizing yeah you know probably don't need it now it's... yeah one of the things that's really helped me with this is that I've I've gone through life acquiring things and then they quickly lose interest after mm. after not a long amount of time and I noticed that I would actually enjoy an item more when I was anticipating receiving it in the mail 
And then as soon as you get it, the, it starts to decline in, in value. Yeah, yeah. So, that's the, <laughs> the danger of ordering books off Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Tr- like that. Try to keep only a couple going at a time, right? Yeah. But what I like about Amazon is you can order the sample. So what I'll do is if, I'm thinking, like if I hear a book recommendation, I'll go to Amazon, I'll download the sample, send it to the Kindle, and then it stays in there, right? Oh, okay. So if okay. I'm done a book, I can go through my shelf and say, okay, well, oh yeah, there's that book on, on uh, I don't know, reinforcing your financial portfolio with uh like gold and silver it's like oh yeah i thought i was going to read that a while ago maybe i'll read it now or uh Mm. or any of these other books that Hmm. uh that you want to get through it's good to have the sample in there and then you can read the first few pages and if it's worth it you can buy it after that but it means you're not going to forget it nice well is that uh yeah unless there's uh, anything else that uh, you wanted to go over it's a pretty good we're about an hour eight minutes so that should be pretty good yeah, I think I'm pretty good for now. I think I just hope that uh, this was useful for you guys listening and we enjoyed making it. And yeah, thank you for listening to the Sorted Skeptics. Yeah, thanks again, guys. We'll see you on next episode.